0: Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here at the Cato Institute, and I'm delighted uh, to open this uh, book forum for my friend Josh Blackman's book, Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty and Executive Power. Six years after its enactment, Obamacare remains one of the most controversial, divisive, and enduring political issues in America. In Unraveled, Professor Josh Blackman argues that to implement the law, President Obama has broken promises about canceled insurance policies, exceeded the traditional bounds of executive power and infringed on religious liberty. At the same time, conservative opponents have stopped at nothing to tear down the law, including a three week government shutdown four Supreme Court cases and 50 repeal votes. Unraveled provides the definitive account of the battle to stop Obamacare from being, quote, woven into the fabric of America. And it's a legal thriller. Uh, a sequel to the much, uh, a much anticipated sequel to the critically acclaimed, unprecedented, the constitutional challenge to Obamacare, which came out three years ago and told the story of the individual mandate litigation. Here to discuss the book, in addition to the author, we have Bob Barnes of the Washington Post and Philip Klein of the Washington Examiner, whom I'll introduce in turn. First, uh, Josh Blackman is an associate professor at the Houston College of Law and an adjunct scholar at Cato. Josh has also authored over two dozen law review articles and his commentary has appeared in all the major national publications. Most recently, Josh channeled the late Justice Scalia in writing about United States versus Texas, the case about President Obama's executive actions on immigration for the Cato Supreme Court Review. Perhaps most importantly, Josh is the founder of Fantasy SCOTUS, the premier Supreme Court fantasy league. Professor Blackman.
1: Thank you so much. It's a a pleasure to be here with with Ilya. I was here not even a week ago uh, discussing the Constitution Day celebration, so it's a treat to be back. Um, We are only three years into the Affordable Care Act exchanges, and it's frankly stunning how the best laid plans of the Obamacare Central planners have utterly failed. I think this law, perhaps more than any other, proves what Hayek, after whom this order term is named after, referred to as a fatal conceit. The arrogance of people like Jonathan Gruber and others who thought if they tweaked the market just right with the right level of subsidies and the right level of mandates and the right level of regulations, everything would magically work. And it frankly hasn't. To give you a sense, the government predicted that roughly 20 million people will be signing up on the ACA exchanges. The actual number is closer to 10. They predicted that there would be a diverse blend of young and old people alike. Young people haven't found the mandate big enough to work. The idea was if enough people sign up, there will be a diversity of insurers here. In many counties throughout the United States, we are down to a single insurer. This is not an accident. This is reflection of the fatal conceit of central planners who cannot understand how something as complicated as an insurance marketplace can work. So what I'd like to do during my time is walk you through a very chaotic period in the ACA's birth that I think typifies the sorts of errors that were made. The very first item I'd like to talk about is a promise that you've no doubt heard. Everyone has insurance, and they tend to like it. Before the ACA was enacted, polls were done that showed that roughly 85% of Americans who were insured were happy with their insurance. Um, this is not an accident. Unless you were older or sicker, insurance generally worked for you because you didn't really use it. It was, a guarded, it was guarding against a certain type of risk. So when the ACA was being debated, the president had a dilemma. He understood that to help poorer people, help sicker people, he would have to make insurance more expensive for others. In fact, many policies people like would be eliminated. So he tried to un, uh, unravel this tension with a simple promise. If you like your insurance, you can keep your insurance. This promise wasn't just um, uh, misleading, but I think it created a perverse constitutional culture. And what I mean by that, the promise of the ACA was that this law can succeed without any sacrifice, that people would not have to alter what they already have. This was, frankly, impossible. Because the only way to provide an expansion of coverage was to make it more expensive for others. This This is traditional spread the wealth economics. But because the president repeated this promise over and over again, people felt this false sense of complacency, that the ACA could operate without any conceivable burdens on anyone. And this was simply a myth. So what happened? Throughout 2010, 2011, 2012, the Obama administration released regulation after regulation, making it harder to keep your plan making it harder to grandfather your plan. Again, this was not an accident. The law was meant to get people off these cheap plans and pay more to the system. But then what happened? In the fall of of 2013, as millions of plans were being canceled, the president said, we can't have this. The promise he made had proved to be false. So he unleashed the first of many executive actions. This was known as the so-called administrative fix, which is something people don't think much about. What the administrative fix basically said was, if you're an insurance company, we will let you sell a plan that is not compliant with Obamacare. Even though under the individual mandate, these plans are void, we will let you sell them. This was a wholesale suspension of the ACA, wholesale suspension of the law, the key component of the mandate. Not only that. The government actually said to states, hey, state insurance commissioners, even if you've already said these plans are void, we will look the other way. HHS will not enforce the mandates against the states or the insurance companies. As a result, millions of people whose plans were voided by the ACA were allowed to keep them. And you may say, wow, Josh, this is great, right? People can keep their plans, keeping his promise. This is wrong. The reason why this is wrong is, first of all, it's illegal. The president can't simply suspend the law. But more importantly, it perpetuates this misperception that we can have this sort of national health reform without any sort of sacrifice. So people are still laboring under the illusion that this law can operate without any burdens to them. Another attribute something called the Cadillac tax. This would have been a 40% excise tax on insurance policies that are very generous. The purpose of this law was very, very clear. It was to get people off their employer-provided plans and into the Obamacare exchanges. The more people who join the Obamacare exchanges, the more diverse they'll be and the more stable they'll be. Did you think this was actually going to go into effect? Of course not. Why? Unions. Labor unions, their biggest form of compensation is through health insurance. And as soon as all the, uh, 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 Michael Cannon just entered the room, as soon as the various pieces of litigation wound down with King v. Burwell, the union started saying, hey, we got to get rid of this Cadillac tax because this is going to hurt our members. Again, a measure designed to actually make the law function could not operate because people were not willing or interested in sacrificing. So what happened? A two-year delay in the Cadillac tax, it will never go into effect. I'll give you another one. We were told during the NFIB Sibelius, a case that gives Ilya heartburn when he thinks about it, that for the mandate to work, we need to have limited special enrollment periods. Josh, you needed a trigger warning. <laughs> this is this, this is not a, this is a high water term. There's no safe space. There's only a road to serfdom all the way down Pennsylvania. So the short answer is the law was meant to be if you sign up for insurance in a specific period of time, it would control things. right? Imagine if you could sign up for insurance on your way to the hospital. You go in the ambulance, log on to your iPhone, and sign up. Who would ever buy insurance in advance? No one. But what did the Obama administration do? For the past three years, basically anyone who wants to sign up for insurance late could do it. They would give you a special enrollment period, show a hardship, no documentation required. My favorite one, if you had a utility disconnect, they would give you a special enrollment period. If you had some unspecified hardship and you called HHS, they would give you an enrollment. We don't even know how many people got these enrollments. And economists in the room, what do you think happened? People who signed up late use much more care. The people who signed up late use almost twice as much care and are putting the insurance companies out of a profit. Now, none of this is surprising. Why? Again, we're in the high coditorium. People behave rationally. And if you create this system where you cannot discriminate against price in any respect and they can sign up any people are not going to use it in the manner it was designed. So again, the distortions in the marketplace came not from uh, Ted Cruz or anyone else, but came from the law itself. I'll give you another one. This, perhaps, is the most egregious form of executive action abuse. The ACA says that the only people, I'm sorry, that members of Congress and their staff are required to use plans created by the ACA. The idea was, let's have members of Congress use Obamacare, because that will make sure it's actually good. If Congress is on this law, maybe it'll be actually better. So what do you think happened as soon as the law went into effect? Both John Boehner and Harry Reid went to the president and said, we need to do something about this. There was no way to pass a bill. Congress was not going to do this. So what happened? This is my favorite one. The president and his Bureau of OPM said, we will designate Congress as a small business. And we will let members of Congress and their staff buy insurance on the small business exchange. And guess what? We will provide a 75% subsidy on the small business exchange. Congress is not a small business. In fact, the word small business is the term of art defined as 50 or fewer employers. Believe it or not, Congress has a lot more than 50 employees. They have about 20,000 by last count. And even if you use the assumption that each office is a separate small business, which is, it boggles the mind, uh, the speaker's office has about 75 employees. So under no sense is this a legal usage of the law. But again, to prevent people from actually feeling the blunt of this law, Oh, the blunt, the brunt, different different Cato form. The the brunt of this law, uh, there's a little smoke still in the air from the last one, the the brunt of this law, we're having modifications. Uh, The case Michael Cannon was most closely associated with is another aspect of this. The ACA uh, has a provision that says uh, subsidies are available on exchanges established by the state. Um, uh, one would think that this would actually mean that subsidies are available on exchange established by the state. But the IRS discovered this provision after a benefits lawyer named Tom Christina pointed out and said, whoa, we can't have this. They should a rule that said state and federal exchanges are equivalent. Now, I don't want to delve into the statutory interpretation argument, but the consequence of this is it alleviated burdens on, this, on the state governments. The ACA, contrary to the Chief Justice, was not about insur- expanding insurance at all costs. There are balances to everything, my friends. There's always a balance. The ACA had expanding insurance, involving states, uh, creating accountability, various mechanisms. So the idea was, let's encourage these states uh, to establish exchanges, that's so implausible. Um, but the government said, we can't have this and we will give subsidies everywhere. And in King v. Burwell, the Supreme Court blessed that by a vote of six to three. I'll give you more examples. I can keep going all day. The employer mandate. The employer mandate would have required businesses to cover their employees with health insurance. It seems like perhaps like a good idea. Maybe yes, maybe not. Would it ever go into effect? Of course not. Why? And these are president's own words. Businesses came to him and lobbied. This is clear rent-seeking. Businesses said, yeah, Mr. President, we can't really do this. Right? We, you know, we, we can't actually give all of our workers insurance. We're going to have to cut their hours. So what happened? Not once but twice the employer mandate was delayed. The first time it was just delayed for an entire year. They said, well, you know, we're having some difficulties implementing it. I don't believe them, but let's give them the of the doubt. Maybe they need a year. Second go around, they delayed again for another year. But they don't just delay it they modify it. For certain really big businesses, as long as they cover 95% of their workers, uh, uh, they're, they're exempt. And for smaller businesses, a different percentage applies. They basically crafted a legislative compromise of how to deal with this law. Again, saving people from the brunt of the law. Once again, the sacrifices this law entails keep getting kicked down the road. I'll give you another example. This is pending litigation, case of House of Representatives against Burwell. Uh, this is the, the, you know, the House uh, uh, payment bill. So the ACA provides various forms of subsidies to uh, insurance companies. But one form of subsidy was not given a permanent appropriation. It was given uh, what's called an annual appropriation, right? Every year this money has to be renewed. So initially the Obama administration requested billions of dollars for these subsidies for the insurance companies. But then something funny happened. The, the request was withdrawn. Huh? The White House called the Senate and said, we would like for you to withdraw this appropriation. Okay, Why would they do this? At the time, sequestration was in effect. Every payment was subject to a sequestration, so the insurance companies would only get 90 cents on the dollar. So the Obama administration said, wow, we don't want these insurance companies getting you know, what the law actually allows. So we will just make up a source of money elsewhere and pay them out of it. There was another type of provision, which would give 100%, this provision would give it 90%, so they just made it up and said, wow, we will go to this other one. This was utterly and completely illegal. Illegal. Uh, I have not seen a single good argument yet about how this is a valid reading of appropriations law. You have these career civil servants at the IRS saying that this is risky. We cannot do this. And then you have Attorney General and the Secretary of the Treasury saying, okay, we'll do this. We're good. We'll find a way. Why do they do it? Because no one could stop them. No one could stop them. Their only meaningful defense is that of standing that courts cannot step in to intervene when there's no injury. See, the, the, the essence of the Obama executive action has been, well, if we're not hurting anyone, it's not so bad, right? If we're delaying this mandate, people are actually helped by it. If we're suspending that mandate, people are actually helped by it. At every juncture, these benevolent suspensions inflict no meaningful injury, which is why the courts are unable to actually remedy them. In fact, uh, the King v. Burwell case that Michael worked on, only because there's a very narrow sliver of people who would actually be hurt By the provision of these subsidies was the case even allowed to go forward. It was a very narrow band of income. But for most of these cases, there is no meaningful judicial remedy under modern standing doctrine. If you read my book, you may wish to reconsider standing doctrine. Um, I'd like to close my remarks in the remaining few minutes of looking ahead of what will likely happen after the election. Uh, uh, You know, it's not going to be terrific either way, Uh, uh, regardless of who wins. Um, Because the simple fact of the matter is, in its present form, the ACA, as designed by Gruber and these other other geniuses, the smartest men in the room, uh, is not sustainable. It is not sustainable. Um, Already you have President Obama and now uh, Secretary Clinton proposing a public option. Now, my friend Seth Chandler at the University of Houston describes a public option as a Trojan horse with windows. Um, there There is no mystery about what this is except for an accelerated road to Uh, some sort of national health care. Now, be very careful, be very precise about terminology. This is not single payer. The definition of single payer is a single insurance company and private insurance is illegal. We'll never have that. Rich people always have their insurance. Just screw everyone else, like in the UK. Uh, So we'll have something similar to the national health system. I am not optimistic that Congress, whether by a Democrat or Republican administration, can pass much unless the filibuster is eliminated. So we're more or less stuck with this, this sort of draft bill that was never meant to be final, where the economics aren't working, and the president through executive action tinkering and tweaking here and there to try to make this thing stay afloat. Um, I am not optimistic. Uh, my first book was called Unprecedented. The second book was called Unraveled. Uh, the third book I suspect will be called Undone. Thank you very much for your attention. and look forward to comments from my esteemed uh, panelists. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Josh. Uh, we can uh, play with lots of unpuns in in future. Uh, right, right. Uh, for that matter, those of you watching at home or in the hall, uh, if you want to uh, tweet comments and questions, or otherwise discuss the book in this forum, uh, the hashtag is #Unraveled. So feel free to. If you have questions, uh, I can uh, even interpose them during the Q and A. have
1: Twitter open so we can get them.
0: I'm I'm not tinkering with my fantasy SCOTUS lineup uh, when you see me on my phone. Okay, Uh, next up is Bob Barnes, who covers the Supreme Court for the Washington Post, where he's been a reporter and editor for more than 25 years. He's also supervised coverage of the Justice Department, the Census, demographics, and race. As political editor during the Clinton administration, he coordinated coverage of national politics, the White House, and Congress. Bob also served as metro editor, directing local coverage of the District Maryland and Virginia. Uh, Bob gave up all thoughts of law school uh, after taking a journalism class at the University of Florida. Mr. Barnes.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, Thanks to Cato. Uh, It's nice after the presidential debate uh, the other night in which the Supreme Court didn't even get a mention to uh, have organizations that actually are interested in the subject. And Cato has, uh, of course, always been that. Also, thinking uh, with that introduction, maybe at some point I won't sound so old when it says I directed coverage of the Clinton administration. (laughs) Um, You know, my job uh, means that I uh, don't uh, take sides. I, I don't try not to have a view on some of the things that come before the court. Uh, And so I decided that my remarks should be about certain things that um, Josh made me think about in reading this book. Um, One is, uh, and this wasn't a a revelation, there are many revelations in this book, this was just a reminder that uh, it seems Justice Scalia gave us two of the four Democratic uh, appointed justices on the uh, court. He uh put in a good word for Ginsburg before she was nominated uh, as David Axelrod uh, pointed out uh, in his book and in a, an article he wrote um, Scalia at a I think the White House correspondence dinner when there was an opening said uh, you know we want somebody good and smart, smart. and Axelrod's sort of you know, Said okay, and goes well. Let me be more specific. We want Elena Kagan, uh, and so maybe he also picked Breyer, and Sotomayor, and we just haven't found that out yet. But uh, at any rate, um, one thing that this book reminded me of—it's very uh, well reported and and so um, intensely detailed—is that Supreme Court reporters, for the most part, are real generalists. Uh, we. Uh, in a way like the justices, deal with all the issues that they pick, and there is a wide range of them. And every sitting of the court, we sort of sort through a bunch of things that we didn't know a whole lot about um, before they got to us. And uh, I think that there's a good reminder in this book um, to look behind the cases to try to figure out more about how they uh, came to be, uh, more about how the legal arguments have progressed uh, from the time uh, an idea comes to challenge something uh, to the time it gets to the Supreme Court. And so it was a good reminder to me, and I've done this in in some cases, you know, it was clear that same-sex marriage was gonna come to the Supreme Court and it was going to be a big deal, so I tried to make a point of covering that issue when it was in the lower appellate courts and going to as many of those um, appeals court arguments as I could to get an idea of how this case was progressing and how it was being argued. I've done that a little bit with voting rights uh, this summer and uh, and in previous years, because I do think that's going to be uh, another issue that's going to be getting to the court that I will need to, uh, know about uh, and so it's a good reminder for those of us who cover the court and, and move from one topic to another to spend a little more time going backwards um, I, I thought there was uh, it also reminded me of the uh, of uh, something perhaps to be admired about Justice Kennedy and I know that doesn't always get a good response no matter what audience I'm talking to um, but you know, it is telling, I think, his votes in these two cases, one in which he thought that the uh, law was completely unconstitutional and was ready to throw the whole thing out, and then uh, next to a vote uh, on the side of uh, the liberal justices and with the Chief Justice uh, to uphold against the challenge. Uh, You know, we often talk about the kind of Supreme Court justices we want, those who are independent and uh, don't feel uh, that they are beholden. Uh, I can't say that that's why Justice Kennedy did this, but I think it is, uh, you know, one of the times that makes the court look a little good when justices go against type and when they do something that we didn't think uh, that they might do. I also thought um, that, uh, in reading this, that the Obama administration was quite lucky to have Don Varelli as Solicitor General uh, during this period. Uh, Don Varelli is uh, not particularly flashy. He was quite uh, heavily criticized at the time for his argument uh, in the first challenge, uh, NFIB. Uh, and was seen as a disaster by some on the left. But I think in both of these cases, and I'd love to hear Josh talk a little more about this, I think he was very smart at giving, at thinking about the court and giving uh, the court something that he thought could get at least five votes in both of these cases. And sometimes uh, I don't think he quite got the uh, attention that he. Deserved in those. Now, the, this administration has probably lost more uh, at the Supreme Court than previous administrations. It has a terrible record in some ways. Um, but I also thought that, uh, you know, on the big cases, they sort of came through and gave the justices something uh, that they could hold on to. And I was really, uh, I wanted to read something from it because I thought um, this was a nice uh, summation. Uh, In remarks that Verrilli gave in his hometown of Wilton, uh, Connecticut, uh, he talks about this high profile that he had. And he said, according to Josh, I'm sure he's right. It's
1: footnoted.
2: uh, We're in a very unusual place in history. It's not unusual it is not usual for so many high-profile cases to come before the Supreme Court in a short span of time. Uh, he argued, as Josh points out, four Obamacare cases in the span of five years. And Verrilli continued, we're at a time when a majority of the Supreme Court has a strong ideological perspective different from the president. Aside from the New Deal, this is probably the greatest amount of friction between the executive and judicial branches. Uh, I, I think he's right, and I think that this segues into uh, the other thing that I thought about reading this book, which is that Josh uh, has taken on this subject at a particular and unique time. Uh, thinking about the future of the court, I don't see something like this in the future. I think we will have either a um, court with a majority of Republican uh, appointees uh, under a Republican administration, or the opposite, uh, a majority of Democratic uh, appointees under a Democratic administration. Uh, I don't think we'll have this circumstance again. Um, and that makes me think about a number of things, including whether uh, liberal groups are thinking with the election of Clinton and the change that that will bring on the court. What issues do they have that they are now preparing uh, to get before the Supreme Court? And whether or not this era that we've had of uh, conservative legal groups being very aggressive about bringing cases to the Supreme Court is over. Um, Steve Shapiro, the uh, uh, ACLU's legal director has a breakfast uh, every, before every term begins Uh, with reporters, and almost every year since I've been doing the court, his uh, mantra has been, we're trying to keep the Supreme Court from taking cases. Uh, That is our job these days. Uh, I wonder what the opposite of that is going to be if the court changes. And so I would like to uh, think about those things and maybe uh, ask, um, when we have some time for that, what kind of issues like that uh, might be out there. So
1: congratulations,
0: Josh. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, Bob, it was striking as, as you were saying that or as you were uh, quoting Virilli, um, uh, being a court watcher, it's un- unusual having these several consecutive terms of the centuries back to back to back, not just with Obamacare, but any other uh, culture war or uh, big uh, legal doctrinal uh, issue seems to have come before the court in the last five years. And so um, perhaps uh, next year after some a series of very thick Cato Supreme Court reviews, we're gonna be issuing uh, pamphlets. Uh, on, aside from the Redskins case, if they take that, that'll be, maybe we'll just have a symposium on uh, uh, various kinds of, uh, of speech uh, and things like that. All right, um, finally we'll have a comment from Philip Klein, Managing Editor of the Washington Examiner. He previously served as Commentary Editor of the Examiner, Washington Correspondent for the American Spectator, and a reporter for Reuters. He is a graduate of the George Washington University and holds a Master's Degree in Journalism from Columbia. Did they know your politics there? (laughs) Um, He's also the author of a book on Obamacare himself called Overcoming Obamacare, Three Approaches to Reversing the Government Takeover of Healthcare, for which we actually had a a book forum here at Cato as well. Phil.
3: I just wanted to thank uh, the Cato Institute for having me here and for everyone for coming to to listen and uh, to Josh for writing this book. Which I think is uh, sort of a very uh, helpful document and almost time capsule of a significant period in American policy and political history. Uh, somebody who's covered Obamacare since it was called Romney Care. Um, I've often. And then
0: it was briefly called Obamacare. Right? Yes, absolutely.
3: So, um, I mean, oftentimes when you're writing every day, you're focused on that day as uh, controversy, so it's helpful to have between uh, this book and his previous book uh, a sort of more comprehensive, broad-based look at everything that we've experienced. And uh, Josh's first book was called Unprecedented, and I, I really think that this is an important way to describe what we've seen uh, with the adoption of Obamacare, because I think one thing, that's significant is that never before in American history has legislation of this magnitude been passed on purely partisan lines with so much public opposition. And I think that everything that happened since then stems from this sort of choice that Democrats made. Now, um, I wanted to unpack that a bit because certainly um, as somebody who wants to often to, to stop the progression of government, I actually think gridlock is often good thing. Um, and if policies were rammed through that I agreed with, I'd be defending that. So I'm not even putting a, uh, a sort of a, that sort of judgment on it and being one of these scolds that longs for the era where Republicans and Democrats would get together and drink, cocktails and and cut all these wonderful deals. Um, But the point is that uh, when Obama came in, he, for a a window of several months, had a filibuster proof majority in the Senate and overwhelming majority in the House. And there was a concerted decision to say, we're going to negotiate amongst ourselves we don't need Republicans to pass anything. So sure, we'd welcome Republicans if they wanted to give us political cover for doing what we want to do anyway, but we're not gonna make any significant policy concessions uh, in order to win over Republicans. Uh, During the battle over Obamacare, one of the sub-battles was an argument over whether or not Obama was acting in a bipartisan, Uh, manner and most of the concessions that he so-called gave were very much cosmetic concessions that had so many caveats on it sort of things like nods to state flexibility that really uh, gave states so many mandates and dictates from Washington that they didn't really have flexibility in reality. Um, I remember there was a a popular talking point that the White House had uh, during the negotiations over Obamacare when they talked about how many Republican amendments were accepted at the committee level. But if you looked at that in reality, none of those concessions actually were policy concessions. There were issues such as during markup of the bill, maybe Republicans would point out some technical mistake or grammatical error uh or um, missing the or a and that would get counted as some sort of adoption of a republican amendment Uh, i think that you could argue that republicans were committed to opposing uh anything that obama did from the get-go i think that there's a lot of truth to that but it's not necessarily certain i remember in early 2009, talking to people like Orrin Hatch and Mike Enzi, who uh, had previously negotiated deals on health care with uh, Democratic administrations. Uh, Orrin Hatch helped get uh, S-CHIP passed through the uh, Clinton administration. So I think that if uh, Obama was willing to make con- more concessions, it's possible that there might have been some bipartisan buy-in, um, and he and I'm not necessarily faulting him uh, for saying, look, I have power and I wanna use it. I, I've even heard uh, none other than Bobby Jindal talk almost enviously of the fact that Democrats were willing to do something and pay the political price for doing something that they believed in ideologically. Um, And if Republicans passed entitlement reforms and uh, Social Security personal accounts on party-line vote, I would not be here criticizing that. Um, However, it's important to recognize that when you do something in a partisan way, when there's massive public opposition, there are going to be consequences. And those consequences for Obamacare were quite significant. It's meant that Democrats lost control of the House and the Senate, largely because of Obamacare. And that has multiple effects. Not only does it compromise the political standing of the executive branch, but it also means that people who were newly elected were elected on pledges to their constituents to pull out all the stops to resist Obamacare. And Josh spoke in great detail about a lot of the executive actions that were taken by Obama uh, that is a result of the fact that he doesn't have the power to get things done legislatively. And if there is no buy-in among the other party, uh, then they have no reason to fix what they opposed from the beginning. And so I think all of those things are, are, are sort of significant, and they point to why um, years later we're still talking about public resistance to Obamacare, both Legally and uh, in legislatively and politically, and I, I think that one other thing that's sort of on my radar now um, is with regard to the possibility of a bailout of insurance companies uh, that's done sort of in a is sort of an end around way, which is that uh, to remind you. Uh, there was this program embedded within Obamacare called the Risk Harder Program, and the purpose of this was to essentially be almost like training wheels or shock absorbers for insurance companies in the first few years of the implementation of Obamacare, when they can't really figure out what the risk pool is like or how specifically to price their insurance. and. The idea was that in, at the outset of every year, insurers sort of say, this is what we expect our medical losses to be. And HHS basically says at the end of the year, once they report how, much, uh, how, they came, how close they came to those costs. And the idea was that insurers that did better than expected would be paying money into a system that would then be used, and that, those funds would then be used to pay for people that did uh, worse than expected. But the problem is that uh, because not enough young and healthy people are signing up and there have been industry-wide losses, um, the, the claims from insurers are billions of dollars higher than the money that's being flowed in, flowing into HHS. So what what you have is a situation where um, the government can't give out all the money that insurers were hoping to to cushion some of the blow of adopting Obamacare. And uh, the Republicans have passed uh, legislation through the appropriations bills that guaranteed that this program had to be budget neutral that HHS couldn't use other sources of funding to try to funnel money to insurers. Well, um, in a little notice regulatory note that came out a few weeks ago, uh, the Obama administration hinted that they're ready to settle or consider settling with insurers who have sued the government, saying that they're owed money through this program. And it just so happens that the federal government has this judgment fund that deals with legal judgments that are made against the United States government. And so this is one way in which the administration may end up trying to uh, funnel money uh, to insurers, and I think this is gonna be uh, the next big battle that's sort of under, under the radar now. Um, and sort of in, in wrapping all this up, I think that I, I was sort of reminded of something that President Obama said in his September 2009 speech to a joint session of Congress when he said, I'm not the first president to take up this cause, referring to health care reform, but I am determined to be the last. And I think of all the things that Obama said uh, when selling that law, uh, that has proved to be the most untrue. Uh, because the reality is that by undertaking this massive expansion of, Obama, of the, the, health, uh, the government's role in health care and doing so on a partisan basis in the face of enormous uh, public opposition and having uh, the government take such a huge role in so many aspects of people's health care experience. He guaranteed that health care would be the most bitterly litigated and argued issue for decades to come. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Phil. Um, And just as a reminder, you talked about the uh, gridlock being a feature, not a bug of our system. Indeed, if you look at your, pocket constitution, Cato or, or otherwise, Cato's comes with uh, the declaration included, or you get a twofer, uh, although you don't get the special uh, Shapiro wedding constitution with our names, and the, my, my wife's a very tolerant lady. Anyway, uh, but there is no, if Congress won't act, the president gets more power clause, uh, at least not in the Cato one. I, I don't know if, uh, you know, your mileage may vary. Um, uh, also, I should mention uh, in relation to your presentation that uh, David Hyman, who's a, a Cato adjunct and a health law and policy scholar, uh, who's uh, starting at, uh, he's now at University of Illinois, will be moving to Georgetown, gave a presentation uh, at our Constitution Day conference about uh, that settlement fund issue and, and other, uh, you know, what to watch for in future Obamacare litigation because there's going to be uh, more and more. Well, uh, what do the, uh, Josh, do you have anything to say in response to your commenters?
1: Yes, I, I, uh, I, th- I think we all can look at this from a 30,000 foot perspective. Um, very often when you're living through history, you don't quite realize it. But throughout the last, now what, six years, the ACA has had such a distinct impact on our political culture. And I think Philip's last point is very true. Regardless of who wins the election, Trump or Clinton or whoever else, right? Even a Republican. Yes, it could be, could be. (laughs) The well has been poisoned. Healthcare, which is a very important public good, a very important public good that we should all be very concerned about, will now forever be entrenched along these political battle lines. The decision to go forward with this on a straight, line basis, I've described as frankly arrogant and maybe a little bit naive, maybe a little bit of both. The idea that we can simply pass this and worry about the consequences later has proved to be so profoundly mistaken that it perhaps has irreparably harmed our prospects of reforming health insurance for any positive good. And if nothing else, I think this is the single worst tasting legacy of President Obama that now healthcare is basically toast. This is now a partisan issue with no prospect of reform.
0: Anything else anyone want to say before we open to questions from the audience? All right, well, uh, while you're thinking about what questions to ask, and you can tweet at me, hashtag Unraveled, uh, Michael Cannon has uh, jumped the queue by tweeting in a couple of questions while the panelists were speaking. First he asks, uh, what are the top three things the next president could do unilaterally to unravel Obamacare?
1: Um, So I I have an idea. Um, This is something I'm actually pitching that I think may actually be insidious. So you remember I mentioned this entire deal that Congress is getting health insurance because it treated as a small business? All President Trump has to say is, I'm rescinding that opinion. I am rescinding that opinion. And hey, Congress, that's what, you're going on to Obamacare. And your staffers, they're going to Obamacare also. You will see them deal so fast, their heads will spin. <laughs> this will be the Art of the Deal Obamacare edition. Um, I'm, I'm going to pitch this to the Wall Street Journal op bed with the good help of Cato's people. Uh, but seriously, Abraham Lincoln once said, the quickest way to repeal a bad law is to enforce it strictly. If the next president said, I am repealing every exemption for the union, every waiver for this special interest group, I am repealing everything. We're going to enforce a damn law. It'll be gone in a year. Um, And I'm not being facetious. I think this may be crazy enough, and Trump may be the only person suicidal enough to actually try this. So enforce your damn law, let it go away. I I don't know. I think that might be the best prospect. Let's see when Harry Reid's employees lose their health insurance. Oh, no, he's gone. When Schumer's employees lose their insurance, they'll they'll come to the table.
3: I I, I would just say uh, I think there are a few ways that you can do it. Um, One is there's something uh, called a waiver for state innovation under which... uh, The executive has authority to um, give states more flexibility to design their own healthcare plans. I think that that could be part of it. I think that um, the HHS also has the ability to add a lot of waivers to the individual mandate. Uh, They already have 20 or so that have been added. And I think that you could add sort of, you could basically put so many in there that and design one that's a broad enough loophole that it essentially in effect repeals the the individual mandate without having to go through congress Um, i think that you could also uh right now the hhs has to dictate what counts as insurance that meets the mandate and i think that there are ways through there that you could probably lower the threshold of requirements for insurance policies that would allow for the creation of a, a larger variety of, of insurance products. Uh,
0: before we go to the, an audience question, I wanted to ask Bob, um, as a journalist, uh, since you have all this experience going back to the Clinton administration, and uh, and you mentioned that uh, uh, the- Even the, further than that. Even I, further actually. than that, yes. Well, I didn't want to, I didn't <laughs> want yes. Uh, uh, you talked about how, how Josh's work is really a, a good one of, of journalism. Maybe he missed his calling and uh, you know, should retire from the academy and do things. Uh...
1: Logger, law professor, all of the above. All
0: right. The, the new age public intellectual, as it were. But anyway, um, you've been the Washington Post Supreme Court reporter through all of this. Has this been kind of uh, uh, different than, than what you were doing uh, covering the court in the years before? Has the, has the nature of the, the job changed or, or how you report these issues?
2: Well, I think it's—I think certainly it's been one of the dominant issues that uh, that I've done. You know, I was uh, my un for this would be that his next book would be unending, um, <laughs> because that's uh, that's how it sort of feels to us uh, at the court. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think I think this and uh, same-sex marriage were probably the two. Issues that came before the court um, that I thought were most consuming, from, uh, from my point of view as a reporter covering it, and also from what I heard uh, in interest from outside uh, people and from readers. This, you know, on both sides, it was um, it was a very you know very very important issue. Um, and, I, you know, I thought that there was uh, a really interesting response in the second, well, uh, King v. Burwell, that when the court took it, I heard from, uh, you know, a lot of people on the left uh, how disappointed they were in the court, that the uh, court seemed to reach out to take this issue, that the D.C. Circuit, you know, uh, hadn't fully uh, had its say on it yet, and that the court um, you know, shouldn't have done it. I always pointed to, and I, and I think Josh pointed this out in the book, and I thought it was one of the smartest uh, strategies of the Carvin lawsuit was to say, um, you know, if we're right, billions of dollars are being spent illegally uh, all the time. And so the court needs to step in now and make a decision on this. I thought it was a very smart argument and I think may have influenced the court um, in the idea that now was the time to take it. Now, those on the left would say they thought it was the time to take it because they thought they had five votes, but um, that's always uh, what happens when the court takes a case.
0: Uh, Also, probably, uh, the influential op-ed that Josh and I uh, wrote in the National Law Journal asking the court to take the the case, that probably had... uh
2: a lot to do. I I, I should have mentioned that first. Uh,
0: Please wait for the microphone, identify yourself and actually ask a question.
1: Thank you. Uh, Tim Carney, Washington Examiner and American Enterprise Institute. And uh, my colleague, Phil, brought up the, the risk hoarders and the insurers. And I wonder about sort of industry's role in the unraveling, how much do the insurers, have they seen this as being as rickety as you see it? How much have they tried to hold it together? Is there anybody in the industry who's trying to unravel it or are they generally all trying to hold it together? So I describe the insurance companies as those who made a Faustian pact, right? They made, Karen Ignani and her lobbyists made a deal with the government saying, if you make people buy our product and you subsidize it, we will be profitable. That's proven not to be the case. The expectation was 20 million people had signed up, 10 million had signed up. Um, So the insurance companies have basically been confronted with a situation where their risk pools are not diverse enough. So what happened, they tried to consolidate. Aetna, Cigna, Anthem said, let's become more consolidated to handle these uh, uh, more shaky risk pools. What did the antitrust say? No, you can't do that. So now you're in this weird position where in the present form, the insurance companies cannot be profitable, so they're exiting the markets. So now what happens? You can have one insurance company in many counties, which is usually the Blue Cross. Uh, What happens if the Blue Cross requests a rate increase? They're going to have to grant it. So now you give even more money to the insurance companies at higher rates so people are less interested in signing up. I think the insurance companies are seeing, not even three years since this bold experiment, that it ain't working, right? That the promises that were made are not panning out. And now if we go down the road of a public option, uh, that basically makes all of them exit the market because they cannot compete against this. So maybe Aetna and Blue Cross had these high expectations just being a profitable endeavor, but this is quickly proven to have unraveled.
4: Uh, John Samples, Cato Institute. Josh, uh, I wanted to ask you about a portion of the book that I read and, and was sort of informative to me in a way I, I unexpectedly, uh, which is the bit about the 1996 failure or the earlier mm-hmm. failure of Hillary Care. You make the point well that the people pushing it realized that a big part of the failure was that people were afraid they would lose their insurance. That puts a lot of context on President Obama's comment that if you want your, to keep your insurance, you can. Right? Uh, it suggests that, that what was learned from the 1990s failure became the strategy of the 2010, 2009, uh, which in, in fact suggests that what President Obama was strategically lying. And you all, the rest of the book, other parts, suggest that he well knew that people, a lot of people would lose their insurance. So on the one hand, that's kind of shocking, uh, even if you don't agree with President Obama. But on the other hand, there's an old tradition going back to Machiavelli that says the whole role of politicians is to do whatever necessary for a greater good. And so really, the issue is not that President Obama broke a moral rule, but that he broke what is the greater good he sought And if you like that, you think the line was okay. If you don't like it, then you think the line's pretty terrible. But it's just a difference about the ultimate end. I wonder if these are the two ways to think about it: to worry about the line, or uh, is there, or the the greater focus on the greater good, and just disagree about that, or is there a third way? And a way I want you to step out of the chronological, the account you're giving, and give us some ideas about legal or moral judgments here. Okay,
1: well, that was a that was a deep question. I think also to John Samples, who was very helpful with the uh, development of this book along the way. Um, the lesson from the Hillary care defeat was people cannot be afraid. Does everyone remember the Harry and Louise commercials? These were aired in the 1990s, and you had this Mon Pa sitting at the table Bob saying, Bob does,
0: he covered yeah, the administration.
1: Yeah, yeah, administration. Yeah, oh hey, Bob remembers, for sure. So you had these uh mon pa sitting at the table saying, Man, I like my doctor. I don't wanna have this new government health insurance tell me where to go. A lesson was learned from this, and Ezra Klein, among others, were saying in 2008, we can't get our asses kicked again. We have to to let people think that they will be able to keep their insurance. Whether it's true or not, it's not. It doesn't matter. So this is the moral question that John asked, right? Um, Do the ends justify the means here? Um, As a matter of raw power, this was Philip's words, this was pure Machiavelli. He had the votes, he did it, right? He simply said it and did it. Um, But the consequence of making that sort of raw power judgment is you do not have the buy-in and people do not have the acculturation to accept such a radical change in what they already have. People have this endowment effect where they wanna keep what they already have. So the consequences of sort of Machiavellian power play is it doesn't work in the long-term. It doesn't allow you to actually manage and implement the law with any sort of efficiency. Um, and indeed, uh, one of the most shocking parts is till the very end, President Obama refused to say he lied. He had this weird apology who said, well, I'm sorry people were upset by, uh, you know, by, by the consequences of what the insurance companies did. Then he said, well, it, it's not really my fault the insurance companies did. And then he had all these prevarications. And the simple fact was that either he's an idiot and had no idea how the law worked or he knew what he was saying and, and um, he was willing to mislead people. Um, I don't think he's an idiot, and, and you know maybe Cato can debate that another day. I, I think he and his Resolve. administration is, is, is Obama an idiot? No, I think he's a smart guy, and he realized that to pass this, you need to learn from the mistakes of Hillary Care. I mean, Bob, maybe you can comment on it. But what was the sentiment back in the nineties when when people were afraid of this Hillary Care? Like, what what was your what was your sense of the, of the time?
2: Well, I think partly I, I always have thought there were a couple of things there. One, I don't think. Uh, People particularly liked that the president gave uh, that assignment to his wife. Oh. Uh, I thought that got things off on a wrong foot. Uh, I thought that there was some secrecy involved in that that um, also got it off on the wrong foot. And, um, and then your larger point, I think, is right, too, that it was a massive thing that people found extremely confusing. And those opposed to it found a very simple uh, narrative as a way to uh, pose it, um, and so I, I think those things didn't happen with the Affordable Care Act. I thought that they were. Uh, I, I think they did learn a lot of lessons from.
1: Them. Yeah, and, and to use another example, um, during the implementation of the uh, sorry, during debates of the ACA. There was one point where the government wanted to release this diagram to explain how the exchanges would work, right? How the state exchanges would interact with the federal exchange. And this is actually true. The Obama administration said, we cannot release this diagram because it's very complicated and it's going to scare people. Because in the 90s, there were all these charts, all these spaghetti string things, which scared people. So they actually basically sabotaged the design of healthcare.gov to avoid confusing people and making them afraid of how this would work. Um, this stunning arrogance, and I keep using this word, but this arrogance, like, okay, we'll just deal with it later. We'll build it later. Don't worry about it. Kick the can down the road. This is not how you transform 10% of the United States economy, or Michael, correct me with a number but it's a significant percentage of the U.S. economy. This is not how you do it, and we are now paying the consequences for it.
3: Yeah, and I, I just add that I think uh, part of the reason why they decided to sort of continue on jamming this through. It's also because of the experience in 94, because one of the arguments when a lot of Democrats were getting cold feet about Obamacare in late 09, early 2010, one of the closing arguments was, well, in 94, we came close and ended up pulling the plug, and they lost control of Congress anyway. So you may, if you're going to lose anyway, essentially, like." you're going to be able to uh, at least ch- say that you did something for it. And I, I think that this relates, this is what Nancy Pelosi was getting at in one of the infamous and I'd argue most misunderstood uh, phrases um, that came out of the healthcare care uh, debate was when she said, you have to pass it to find out what's in it. Um, and the, the point that, that she was trying to make, the, the way it was portrayed was she was saying, nobody's read the bill and we have to figure out what's in it after we pass it. But the reality, the, the actual argument she was trying to make was that right now everyone's focused on the process so they, can't re- they don't realize how great this is and all these amazing things that are in it. And once it gets passed, and you you, t- you hold your you know you you take the hit to, to pass it, people are going to realize all this great stuff that's in it, and they'll actually start to support it. So you'll actually it'll be a political win in the long run. And that was obviously uh, the opposite happened.
0: She could have explained that if that's what she meant. <laughs> I mean, that's not that difficult to explain. Correct or not? Right there.
4: Uh, Jim, do own um, no affiliation. Uh, in the upcoming litigation over the risk corridor, should we assume that the uh, settlement payments will be made with uh, bundles of cash?
1: Like Iran, right? right. There will be pallets of cash dropped uh, in its headquarters. Swiss uh, francs. Yeah, the Swiss franc. yeah. Um, so, so I think Philip mentioned this earlier, but the long and short of it is Obama has basically, the, the Obama administration has said, well, even though Congress has an appropriate money, um, there's this thing called the Judgment Fund, which is an appropriation, we'll pay you out of that. Um, that may not be correct I haven't researched this closely enough but Congress should revisit the Judgment Fund if this is now used as a literal slush fund to get around things that Congress won't appropriate it's got to be cut off it should not be allowed to be used where there's not an appropriation and that should be a very meaningful thing that I'm sure a Trump president who's used to stiffing people on bills will appreciate (laughs) no, no, right
0: here right beside you
5: So let's assume for a moment that Hillary Clinton wins the presidency, but the uh, Republicans hold the House and the Senate. What kinds of executive actions do you expect Hillary will take uh, beyond just extending the things that Obama's already done?
1: Um, all right. So, so one thing that's been floated, and this was a Phillips point, is states could actually try to create a single-payer system using this flexibility. So the same sort of flexibility that allows states to basically opt out could be allowed to to have states that have single-payer. I don't think that's much of an option because, what was it, New Hampshire, Michael, or Vermont? Which state did? Vermont. Vermont tried it, and it collapsed, like, in, what, two years? So let California go have a single-payer system. Let it implode. You know, I I couldn't care less about them. But we'll we'll foot the bill. Um, In terms of what can executive action be done more broadly, she can continue exemptions, continue grandfathering, continue kicking the can down the road so people don't feel the pain of this law. I think that's probably the most likely things Hillary would, would do.
2: Anything to add I don't, I don't know uh, the answer to that question but I was isn't there an initiative in Colorado
1: yes yeah, so, so there's a single-payer initiative in Colorado and and the the HHS could basically approve it if they think it's worthwhile as a substitute but
0: I think we really she, don't want to get into
3: the weeds of that one yeah I, uh, I feel the blunt of the force right I think she's probably most likely to try to figure out a way to get more subsidies to insurers because She's, I mean, that's one of the big issues is the premiums are going up and people aren't buying the, the, buying the goods. So I think she's going to have to, she's going to try to find some way to use some other, reallocate some funds from somewhere else in HHS or give certain regulatory relief to insurers uh, to convince them to keep premiums down.
6: Thank you. Uh, My name is Bruce Kaufman. I write a history column. uh, And I write sometimes about the history of the law. So any of you could please explain to me, in layman's terms, uh, Scalia's argument in his dissent in Burwell.
1: State means state. State means state. (laughs) That's layman's stuff. I I mean, well, look, uh, this this was a case where you had a provision of the ACA that said, subsidies are available in exchange established by the state. It's a phrase used seven times in the law. It wasn't some sort of Scrivener's error. And Scalia says the most clear interpretation of established by the state means established by the state. The Chief Justice, in an opinion for six justices, wrote that uh, uh, yet when read in context, that wouldn't make sense because then states wouldn't have all this money. And then we have to read it to mean state means federal. Um, the Scalia opinion, again, I could like Rabbi Hillel, I could say it on one foot. It's very easy. State means state. Um, it's Robert's opinion that requires a lot of twistifications.
0: So the follow-up question, just for those uh, who, who online or who can't hear, was uh, doesn't he say that uh, in some places uh, uh, there are state exchanges, in some place federal, in some place they, they work together? How does that fit into his analysis?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, when Congress wants to say state, they say state. And other times, if they say federal, they say federal. They, they have ways of defining it. Um, uh, you know, we, we can talk about that later. along Langloch- I mean, I mean fu-
0: fundamentally, uh, and I've, I forget now how much Scalia uh, went into this, but fundamentally, The only reason you would even start engaging in twistifications or giving these kind of uh, contextual unnatural readings is if uh, the the challengers had no story uh, that, that reading a state as state makes no sense whatsoever. It's absurd. Uh, and they did. They had a very simple one. They said that, uh, look, this is an incentive for states to sign up uh, for uh, Obamacare, for the uh, exchanges, that uh, only if they did that would, they, uh, would their citizens get uh, a subsidy. We don't know what the real story is, but that is a plausible story, and therefore you shouldn't go into the, the, the less natural readings.
2: But but I would have to say that I thought that that was always the hardest uh, question that the opponents uh, of Obamacare had to get hurdle over, because the uh, you know the natural uh, question is well why would they do that? That's not it. It undermines the whole program. Why would they build a program and then undermine it at the same time? And I don't think that the idea that uh, it was pressure on the states to do that uh, was one that the court accepted, uh, partly because so many members of Congress said, well, no, that's really, we had no idea that that's what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing, but uh, it was there. um, And and I think this whole idea of why would they do that was the thing that that was very hard for opponents to, to answer.
0: Roger. Greg Lipper's been holding his hand. I think he wants to redirect this into uh, the religious aspect, the religious liberty aspect. Oh, we not even talk about cases. Hobby
6: Lobby. This is
0: actually not what it's no, no, and, uh, we'll get to Roger in a second. <laughs> Greg's been holding his hand for a
6: while. Um, uh, Greg Lipper, uh, formerly of Americans United for separation of church. And of Greg gave and me state. very
1: good books in the comment, which I'm very <laughs> grateful. Thank
6: you, Greg. Uh, now, in, now back in private practice. I actually wanted to follow up on King v. Burwell, because uh, I'm a liberal and a supporter of the, the act. And um, like many of my colleagues, we were Why do you
0: hate poor people?
6: uh yeah um so uh and and when i saw the court when we saw the court grant cert in king v burwell we were all very nervous and then after the argument i thought you know maybe roberts will vote you know join the the four more liberal members and uphold it but it'll be a sort of a narrow win or a, a tepid win and i was quite surprised um in my case pleasantly by the Emphaticness of especially the conclusion of the majority opinion, which was seemed to me to say not just you lose here, but Congress passed this law to strengthen markets, not to stabilize them. It almost was like it read to me like stop bringing politically motivated lawsuits to try to gut the Affordable Care Act. Get out of my courtroom. Go back to Congress. Is, is I think seemed like the subtext there. Um, I guess my my questions are: Were you surprised by that? And and what do you think led the chief justice to um, speak much more emphatically in this case than he did in uh, NFIB, where he seemed really to be grimacing as he was upholding the law? Uh,
1: You know, I've given up trying to psychoanalyze John Roberts. I don't think I have the qualifications to do so. I think it's a it's a a fleeting enterprise. What I will say is that in the penultimate paragraph in NFIB, he wrote that. it is not our job as judges to fix the consequences of the mistakes people make. And in the final or the second-to-last paragraph of King, he said, um, the purpose of this law is to improve health insurance, not to destroy it. He's making very clear that we are not going to be the ones to destroy this law. If you want to get rid of it, repeal it. Um, The difficulty with John Roberts and why he continues breaking my heart and breaks Ilya's heart every single term, it seems, is that he acknowledges the position contrary to his. In NFIB, he said, this ain't a tax, but I'll pretend it's a tax to uphold it. In King, he said that the plain text meaning was strong. He said it was strong, but I'll engage in these twistifications because I don't think this is the purpose of the law. So it's like there's almost like this, like, you know, angel and devil on each shoulder, right? He's trying to, you know, have this internal di- dialectic with himself. But ultimately, the chief has seen fit to, you know, gut the Voting Rights Act and strike down campaign finance laws and... You know, get go against gay marriage and you know all these other things. But for Obamacare, he says I'm not going to do this. I'm not even if it's constitutional statute. I'm not going to. As for Greg's other question, why did four justices vote to grant cert if there are only three to reverse? Um, I don't know. Uh, maybe they realize, like Bob said, this was an important case. Let's resolve it now. And perhaps the court took it right away to dump it and rule for the government. I don't know.
3: I mean, I also think that an important distinction between the two cases is that the individual mandate case was arguing really about the role of government and what are the limits on federal power, whereas in the the King v. Burwell case, it wasn't about that. Nobody was arguing that if the Congress wanted to say subsidies were available either to federal or state exchanges that they couldn't. The argument was over, well, what did they actually do and what does the law say? So as a result, I think that, you know, if you think of yourself as somebody who wants to, you know, who believes in a government of limited powers, you'd struggle a lot more with the individual mandate. And I think that in that case, he tried to, uh, he couldn't get around a, the Commerce Clause justification for it. So that's why he had a sort of fall back on this tax, the, the tax argument. But that was probably why he struggled with that one more.
0: The, uh, there's also the, the, the Roberts apologist or Kennedy apologist explanation, which is that uh, Kennedy went over and Roberts then joined him so that he could write the opinion rather than have Kennedy write it or assign it to Ginsburg or something, or that uh, Roberts was already over there and Kennedy joined him so that it would be a 6-3 rather than looking like another uh, five to four, but who knows.
2: I I think actually Josh makes a good uh, argument in the book that 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 would be wrong, that Roberts had decided uh, that he was going to rule against the challengers uh, and that you can tell it now by the questions he asked, the very few questions he asked.
7: <laughs> I, I quite agree with Phil that the, um, in, in Roger Pilon Cato Institute, that the um, mandate case um, NFIB was far and away the more important from a larger perspective. but. Uh, the the uh, King v. Burwell was not unimportant as a clear case that involves the chicanery because it was a straight-out um, textual uh, issue about which there really wasn't much wiggle room. There was arguably more wiggle room in the um, NFIB case. Here it seems to me that the chicanery was no better illustrated than by Gruber you remember Gruber was the one who said exactly why they distinguish exchanges established by the state from those uh, established by the uh, federal government. And so the, to argue that one away, as Roberts did, is, uh, is, is, is in some ways, uh, even though the, the import is less, uh, more egregious from a purely jurisprudential point of view.
1: Right. So Jonathan Gruber was at one point the architect of the ACA and throughout all of 2009 and 2010, he had these videos, which which, uh, a guy named Rich Weinstein in Philadelphia discovered many of them. And um, Gruber was there saying things like, you know, we need to take advantage of the ignorance of the people. While people are ignorant, that's a good thing, and the American people are stupid. And then he had all these videos saying how, you know, we need to punish states that don't establish these exchanges. And at first he said, well, it was a speaker, right? He said the wrong thing. He gave a five-minute speech that was wrong. And then he said the same thing in another speech, and, and then this comment was repeated. And then and Philip can maybe talk about this. You had all these journalists who are covering this, who said, this is insane. These are truthers, right? These are the hell-big truthers. And it turns out that some of them had reported similar things throughout the, uh, throughout the passage of the bill. So the fact of the matter is, when you have this massive bill that no one read, Baucus, the chairman of the committee, said, I don't read these bills. I pay people to do that, right? I'm not going to read this bill myself. When no one reads the damn thing, is it any surprise? Is it any wonder that you have these sorts of issues where it doesn't work perhaps as Barack Obama intended it to work. But what we do have is a text, a text of the statute which judges can read. But now the Supreme Court has signaled the way we read Obamacare is to help people get health insurance. That is the purpose. And once you read the text with that backdrop, there's no winning. You can't win because everything is well. You know, I mean, funding these risk corridors is you know probably not legal, but we need to help insurance companies. And oh, these subsidies, yeah, they're probably not legal, but you know, it'll it'll help people get health insurance. It's a losing proposition.
4: I do have a serious question. Uh, When the uh, president extends the enrollment period or takes other action which adversely affects the actuarial calculations of the insurance companies, can they refuse to sell policies?
1: Um, So the short answer is um, they probably could, but they haven't. But your point about actuarials is very, very significant. All these insurance companies price their policy with very precise metrics based on how many people they sign up. Who can enroll in a specific period. But if you have a situation where people are signing up at any given time, it screws those numbers up. And in a series of regulatory comments submitted uh, about six months ago, the insurance company said, we can't afford all these late enrollees. So now the Obama administration said, we're going to tighten up this enrollment. Okay, We're going to require verification if someone actually asserts a hardship. Um, the consequence of this, though, is that it's going to make the enrollment numbers plateau. Right. The way they were using their enrollment numbers was to pad it, to inflate it, by letting people always sign up late. Now you have fewer people signing up and we've got people with this heartbreak saying, I want Obamacare and I can't buy it. So I am skeptical that they will actually tighten up the special enrollment periods because again it will hurt people who want help health insurance. Okay.
3: And I mean, I think that the, the important thing is that there are plenty of ways that insurance companies could theoretically do this or that. But I, that's one of the important things that Obamacare did is that by putting government insurance uh, essentially in business together, it created this symbiotic relationship <coughs> where they're both dependent on each other in a certain way so that the Obama administration has to make sure that insurers are happier, to a certain extent, because it needs their participation in Obamacare. If there's a mass exodus of insurers, um, it causes that it just makes and compounds the, the problems. You don't have as much choice. Premiums go up. Fewer people then enroll, which makes it more difficult for the ex- for the insurers that do remain. Uh, and so. Uh, at the same time, insurers have to be worried about the Obama administration and the whoever the administration is that follows because uh, they've got hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies flowing from the government, and also the government has massive federal uh, regulatory discretion uh, that could cause mass uncertainty for their business model and cause their investors to panic. They could make adjustments to... For instance, there's something that isn't covered as much called the medical loss ratio, which is basically uh, it's effectively the government saying uh, you're allowed, you're only allowed to, you have to spend X percent of money um, toward medical costs uh, that you collect in premiums. And they could adjust that or change what counts toward medical costs. And that they're basically setting how much profit insurers are legally allowed to make. So as a result of that, there's a lot of levers that government could use behind the scenes to basically saying, uh, convincing insurers that they have to behave the way that the federal government wants them to.
7: Jared Hatch with the Heritage Foundation. Several of you addressed earlier kind of the, the political divide Um, that the Affordable Care Act created when it was passed. I'd like to hear your thoughts on some of the steps that could be taken to perhaps mend that divide and how that would work and what the possibility of that is.
1: I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but I don't think it's possible. Um, I I really don't. I think this is a new third rail of politics where roughly half the nation wants something approaching single-payer, and the other half the nation wants to repeal this thing root and branch, there's not much of a middle ground. I think the most likely scenario is that Obamacare will plod along until the Democrats get enough votes or eliminate the filibuster to create a public option. At that point, we're off to the races. Um, the decision again of Obama, Phil made the point very cogently. The decision to go at this with 60 votes—a Machiavellian power play—that set the stage for the end game of private. Uh, I shouldn't say end game, but the end game for the health insurance as we know it. Right? It might take longer than expected, but it put in place this. Hayek wrote to serfdom, right? This sort, of, this sort of pathway ahead that I don't think can be averted. Um, the courts are not going to stop it. Um, who knows? Maybe Donald Trump will be the great destroyer of health care and, and find a way. But he supported health insurance. He supported single payer. So, who, you know, who, who the heck knows?
0: I, if I make wonder. A fabulous deal. You give me a wall, I'll give you this.
2: And... I I wonder if, um, and, and this is a more of a question than a. Uh, because I don't know the answer, Um, whether the litigation strategy to go after this bill, the second uh, it became law, hardened uh, both sides in a way that nothing could be fixed. You can see now the fact that that this is just not one that either side will talk about a compromise in, and I think it's because perhaps that this was so hardened – uh, initially, with so many lawsuits, uh, that it was clear that uh, you know the sides didn't want to compromise. Um, now, I don't want to you know speaking against my self-interest here if I uh, uh, discourage litigation, since that's what I uh, that's what I do. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, that that was a big problem and ever trying to make any kind of fixes uh in this law that i think e- both sides agree needed to be made
1: so I'll, I'll respond briefly um the idea of a compromise i think is a misnomer i said the outset that 85 percent of americans were happy with the health insurance they didn't want to change what were they compromising people were happy with what they had who was who who was bad people who were sick and people were old um, Had there been a straight-up tax saying we will tax your health insurance to pay for old and sick people, I'd actually prefer that than than basically making me change what I have. But this wasn't it. They wanted a universal coverage. And and so the, the entire notion of a compromise, I think, was always a misnomer. People were generally happy with what they had. They didn't want to change it. So this was only possible by misleading people about what would result from it.
7: Uh, Bob Brownell or uh, unaffiliated. Um, It's my understanding that most of the enrollment increase under Obamacare has been an expansion of Medicaid, and we haven't talked about that at all. Um, By by putting all these people into Medicaid, we've basically expanded the entitlement state, and isn't that sort of a backdoor way of going to single-payer?
1: Um, right. So the number that the president likes floating around, that 20 million people have gained insurance, I think was a 13 million, give or take, or maybe 11 might be off. But more than half of them have been through the Medicaid expansion. Um, that number would have been even higher but for the Supreme Court's decision, NFIB v. Sibelius, which allowed states to opt out of the Medicaid expansion. So the short number the, – the, the short answer is most of the people benefit from this law are being given free health insurance. The rest of them are being given subsidized health insurance. I saw one number that said roughly 140 million Americans have governed subsidized health insurance. Um, that is an expansion of the entitlement state. You can't get rid of that. Once you give someone a subsidy, you cannot roll that back. So if nothing else, we now have the majority of Americans using the government for health care. The majority. Um, which is why I don't think you can ever ratchet that back. Michael Cannon's grinning with, 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 uh, you know, with his hand pensively on his chin. M- maybe there is, but I, I, my perspective is I don't know how that's possible.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's finish this by uh, calling out Michael Cannon from the uh, audience. Let's give him the microphone. He's been silent other than a couple of tweets towards me.
1: What did, on Twitter I, I, I
0: realize we should have uh, given you a trigger warning ahead of this whole uh, forum as kind of a support session for I'm you. i
5: twitching back here. Uh,
0: I, I used to talk to Michael every day and you know, since King V. Burwell came down, I, I hardly see him. So We
5: only see each other in fora like this.
0: That's right, that's right. So w- what are your thoughts having heard this kind of re- refresh your recollection of uh, at least the, the King V. Burwell side of this?
5: Well, um, I, I, I'll avoid talking about King V. Burwell except for a question that I have uh, for, for Robert Barnes. Uh, I will say that it's an open question. I think one of the remarkable things about Obamacare is that it remains an open question whether you can eliminate subsidies, health insurance subsidies, that people are receiving. Because if you'll recall, earlier this year, Congress sent to President Obama legislation that President Obama had to veto that that, that would have repealed all the exchange subsidies and repealed the Medicaid expansion. Now... You might say that they did that uh, only because they knew he was going to repeal it. And that may be true, but it's still significant and I think makes it an open question whether, in this case, whether this could be the one case where Congress does eliminate subsidies that people are already receiving. But the question I have uh, for Robert Barnes is is this. At what point is some Supreme Court reporter going to ply with drinks just the right Robert staff uh, clerk Uh, so that we can find out exactly what did happen in both King v. Burwell and NFIB v. Sebelius. (laughs) Uh,
2: When Roberts is dead, maybe, Uh, you know, people always uh, ask me how much information I get from uh, clerks uh, at the Supreme Court, and I usually have to explain it's much easier to talk to a justice than it is to talk to a clerk um, because they take the vow of silence uh, when they start working uh, at the Supreme court. Um, you know, I I think everyone can have their own theory about that first, um, case. And I, I think what's often lost in that is what we just talked about, which is the, uh, wins that Roberts thinks that he got out of that case, the commerce clause uh, decision with five votes, the seven votes, uh, on Medicaid, uh, and, uh, things that did ha- make a big difference. And I think, um, I think Josh is right that he, um, time and time again, didn't want the court to be making this decision. He wanted, uh, Congress to do it or people to throw out Congress and get a new Congress in. But, you know, I I think uh I, I don't think anyone knows the the inside story of especially what happened in the first case.
0: All right. With that, um let's thank our panelists.